This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Lou, the host of Love Me, a CBC podcast about the messiness of human connection. Our brand new season is coming soon, featuring deeply personal stories, like a man who becomes obsessed with a mysterious painting, two brothers stuck sharing a room again as adults, and a note slipped into the back pocket of someone's jeans that leads to a surprising late-night encounter. Subscribe at cbc.ca slash loveme or wherever you get your podcasts. The new season launches November 13th. Tanse, Anine, Buju, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Today on Radio Indigenous, whether it's writing bios, creating bed tracks, or teaching and reaching young people, music has long been a space to create and share story. You might have noticed that we have new theme music on our show this season. If you didn't, don't worry, there's not going to be a quiz. The new song is called Brothers by electronic act Wolf Saga and drum group Chippewa Travelers. We've licensed it from a Toronto-based production music company called Bed Tracks. They make the type of music we hear in radio shows, in the background on podcasts, and in ads on TV. This fall, Bed Tracks released a new line called Storytellers, and this new stream is opening up new possibilities for Indigenous musicians. We stopped by the studio in the east end of Toronto to check it out. These are the tracks. If I was to take some of the effects off, it would sound very... My name is Nigel Irwin. I'm a Cree Canadian artist. I'm currently creating and remixing tracks for our Indigenous Storytellers catalog. My name is Oliver Johnson, and I am the creative director at Bed Tracks and Storytellers. Storytellers is the world's first indigenous music library, and it's the, it's the first opportunity that filmmakers are going to finally have to be able to find music for their productions, knowing that this music is from the communities in which these stories are coming from. <laughs> This is the current track that I'm working on right now. I feel like it's at the, the sort of the tail end of the creation process. One, two, three, about ten tracks open at this point. I started with a raw sample of a group called Scylla. They are a throat singing duo. And my task is to create a new thing out of what I have. Let's hear what this sounds like. The intention behind this project was to create something spooky, ethereal, atmospheric. There was some horror film project that was in the works, and this was like the idea was to create something for that. Whenever you're making music for film, one of the most important things you have to identify is the role of music for the picture. So when you're when you're looking at a picture and you're trying to decide what the sound is, 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 the, is the music going to support the picture? Is it going to help drive the picture? Ultimately, you want it to emotionally convey what you're trying to do. 
the horror film took place in the Arctic. So immediately I put myself in a place of, okay, where would I be? I'm, I'm picturing dense snow. Maybe there's a storm. It's a blizzard. You can only see like 10 feet in front of you. And this idea of like the, these sort of ethereal voices coming from the sides and the distance and sort of surrounding you, giving you this sort of eerie tension. And I wanted to, almost as if Scylla was there in the movie like as a spirit or a sort of a ghostly presence. What Scylla gave us and, you know, provided for, for the catalog was these this Inuit throat singing that when you can't help but to listen to it and conjure up images. And so, you know, that's the hallmark for creating music for pictures, being able to listen to it and have it conjure up an image to help tell that story. So I'm blessed to be a remixer slash creator. Um, I got brought in to... Initially, it was to take a look at samples that were recorded here in the studio from some indigenous artists, um, Scylla, Chippewa Travelers, um, and a few others that were sort of more rooted in, I guess you could say, like a root sound, sort of a traditional sound, big drum, hand drum, throat singing. And it was just this great sample library. My job was to take that library and remix it and create something new. Remixing is just simply the process of taking one thing, chopping it up, cutting it up, rearranging it, and making something new. It's like if you cut out a magazine page and you chop it all up and make a collage out of it, you're remixing that magazine. It's just a matter of getting in there and getting your hands dirty and sort of actually making it. And that just feels like play. I feel very deeply when I hear something like Scylla, this throat singing, or just the big drum sounds, Chippewa Travelers. Like, as an indigenous person, that evokes something quite deep in me. And and I hope that doesn't get lost in what we're creating. I hope it evokes the same feeling, maybe for a new generation or for a different set of ears. Music is tough in general. I don't know a lot of people who are getting rich off music right now, and I don't think if if that's the reason you're going into it, it's, you're going to need a better reason because there's going to be lots of times where you're not getting paid. There's an aspect of this project that could be very lucrative, it, you know, if if everything goes right and it grows in the way we're hoping it'll grow. Um, but honestly, I'm more interested in the cultural impact that it could possibly have. Um, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I want to go to places that I know are creating something important and pushing the conversation forward and pushing the culture forward. And this certainly feels like that. Our hope for storytellers is that ultimately something like this needs to be run and owned and the vision of it needs to be in the hands of the people that are creating the music. Our role in this is to help get it off the ground, our ambitious goal. We've set in place a multi-year objective to be able to have this company um, and this library and this catalog uh, run 
and marketed and owned and produced and creative directed within the indigenous community. And so that's what our goal is over the next few years, to help get it off the ground and transfer it. The hope is that we can bring more people in. I've traveled a lot in Canada and I've been to a lot of communities and reserves. I've met a lot of talented kids and I'm, I'm really interested in fostering talent and seeing what the next wave can be and where this, this project can go. And I think just knowing that something like this is out there can be very encouraging for you know, anybody. Say you're a young kid who's making beats in your room and you, you, know, you have a dream and then you see this, this catalog come up and you think, oh, maybe I could put, put my stuff in there. It's like, yeah, it's definitely a possibility for sure. Nigel Irwin is a Cree artist who creates and remixes music for the Storytellers Library. Oliver Johnson is the creative director at Bedtracks. From Juno Awards to BBC Airplay and dates opening for Neil Young, William Prince has had a busy couple of years. Back in his hometown of Winnipeg, William played to a sold-out crowd at the West End Cultural Centre in late November. And we were there to catch it all. Next week, we'll spend the hour with William Prince to talk about his roots in Pegwa's First Nation, why his son is his biggest inspiration, and how his dad instilled a love of music. So much so that he wrote this song for him. Ready, boy, now what you doing? Go on, go back for your ruin your life. With just grade seven on your tune. It just tells the story of my dad. You know, it's been just over three years since he passed. And he, he didn't get to hear this record, and it's just done so many things, you know. And he'd be right there, you know, supporting everything that I'm doing and still coming to shows if he could. And so I like to share a bit of who my dad was in every show. His old man drove him to town, gave him $20, said, No more fooling around, you want to be a man. Well, a man's got work to do Fourteen, no education Lied about his age Every application Fitting tires while going to school at night And off to the mines Two babies to feed Mailing home money and the things they need Freshly broken heart Kept them way too long Rough around the edges like most young men Could drink a beer with the best of them Smoked his share and played a mean guitar too Don't get much more old school than that hear it in his voice felt it in his hands taught me how to sing all his favorite songs so when you're sitting in an aluminum chair gears at the knees got no clutch only got one speed Who cares where we go now Let's just get there, you and me 
Just cause you ain't walking Don't mean you ain't a traveler Remember the good times And every day after No, it's like an endless highway I know how you feel So Eddie boy, sit back, let me take the wheel Oh, Eddie boy, you've earned your rest Let me take the wheel Say things here, um, but you know, there was a gospel singer from the Pegasus First Nation whose name is no stranger to this place, and I, that was my dad who taught me how to play guitar and taught me a lot of things. And, um, I feel now closer to him than maybe the end time before he left. You know. My good friend said, maybe he's in a position to help you better now than he ever was when he was here. And when I'm anywhere else, I'll usually tell like a somewhat funny story to lighten the, the mood here, but... <laughs> I figure we could just be quiet together. The song's about Ed Prince, gospel singer. First Nation.
That was William Prince and Eddie Boy, recorded live at the West End Cultural Centre in Winnipeg in late November. Tune in next week to hear William talk about his life, loves, and inspirations. Plus, we'll play a mix of old favourites and brand new songs from that concert. You can also head to cbc.ca slash podcasting to subscribe to our podcast, so you can go back to those tracks again and again. She's a folk music hero, a songwriting icon, and she's been breaking ground ever since the 1964 release of her album, It's My Way. Buffy St. Marie is nothing short of a living legend. My next guest wrote Buffy's first and only authorized biography. Andrea Warner was granted exclusive access. She rode in the van with Buffy and her band on tour, as I sit here jealously reading this. (laughs) Andrea has written a powerful and intimate look at the life of the accomplished artist. Andrea also works at CBC Music in Vancouver, and as you can hear her laughter in the background. Oh yeah, sorry. (laughs) That is where we've reached her. Welcome, Andrea. Hello, thank you so much. I'm so green with jello right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like trust me, I'm still I am still this this sort of stupefied laughter you hear, that's like my constant state that this has been my life for the last couple of years. Why did you want to write this book? Well, I really, you know, I I spent a lot of time particularly when you when you begin working for the public broadcaster um, and you start to think about what is Canadian music, who counts as Canadian and uh, who has been left out of that equation. Um, you know, I've just I've always personally been really interested in writing about people who I feel have been really underrepresented. Mm-hmm. It's not all about fame or anything, but getting the credit that they deserve. I read a lot about women. Um, I prioritized their voices in a lot of my writing, queer voices, people of color, indigenous musicians, particularly as a white settler in Canada. Um, it's not about me like bringing those stories to light at all. It's me making spaces for those voices and using my privilege the way that I can. Mm. Capturing someone's life, of course, is, you know, is no small feat. What was the process that you undertook with Buffy to put this book together? Well, we spoke every week on the phone, twice a week, for two hours at a time. Uh, We did that for six or seven weeks. Then I met up with her on tour for three dates uh, on the East Coast in the States. We went, uh, she played in New York, then we went to Woodstock, and then we went to Providence, Rhode Island. And so I got to hang out in the van and be part (laughs) of the crew. And I love being behind the scenes. I love that, that viewpoint is such a privilege and I I'm just like so always thrilled when any whenever anyone lets me sort of like um see how it all comes together I mean I've never toured in a van with a band before like this is (laughs) this is my almost Mm -hmm. famous moment Mm -hmm. but you know I did it at 38 instead of uh 15 then we resumed phone calls when we got back Mm -hmm. and uh just once a week at that point and uh, I met up again when they came to the west coast and I went out for a few dates with them then uh, and that was really our process. It was, you know, that was the interview process. And then I wrote all summer and sent it to her. What about her music? How did you uh, explore and interpret her music in terms of her life experience? 
Well, I really, I think the key is just listening to her songs. You know, every song of hers, whether it's about uh, indigenous rights, indigenous history, or about love, or, or you know, the intersection of those two, um, whether it's about uh, historical things, or science, or technology, or the environment, every song is an education, and everything that you sort of need to pull out of her songs and then reflect on her life it's all there she's she's provided this amazing map like it's all there in every song you know and so it's just really a matter i think of like really truly respecting the words respecting the space that she makes for um herself and for other people in her work and you know sort of getting out of the way and listening really deeply mm-hmm. i i said i kind of slip inside a song and I think about it sort of with this one part of my brain in a really critical, objective way. And then I think about it with this other part of my heart that is much more, um, you know, it's much more emotional. And I, then I try and fuse the two together. So, Andrew, what is the most, one of the most memorable things that you learned about Buffy during all the time that you spent with her? Oh, my gosh. One of the, one of the things that stands out to me the most is just, you know, she, she hadn't really talked a lot before about her last marriage to Jack Nietzsche with whom she you know won an Academy Award for Up Where We Belong uh, that beautiful song and uh, their their marriage you know lasted about seven seven years or so it was a very troubling dark time in her life and she'd really never talked about it publicly and I really wanted to sort of honor that and it was you know that we saved sort of that conversation for last and I feel like it's it's such a powerful chapter in her life it's a powerful chapter in the book and it's a really empowering chapter I think for a lot of women who we realize we're very strong 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 people and we can still end up in situations that we sort of ask ourselves, how did this even happen? How mm-hmm. did we get here? Mm-hmm. And then how do we extricate ourselves? Andre, can you read a little bit of that chapter for me? Absolutely. Uh, so this is just, just after they've gotten married, Buffy St. Marie and Jack Nietzsche. St. Marie describes Nietzsche as a cyclical alcoholic. If you imagine a clock, this was his pattern. At noon, he was fine, but by 10 after the hour, he would get uncomfortable and start giving her the side eye, finding fault with little things and complaining. By 12.30, he'd be boiling. If he was driving, you started to worry that you were going to have an accident. And by the time he pulled up to the restaurant, well, the poor valet would just get an earful. Jack could be so cruel to strangers, to waiters and waitresses, anybody who happened to be in his way when that nightmare was coming on. Dinner out almost became impossible. It was so embarrassing. And it wasn't as if he was making a scene to be seen and heard. It was coming from inside him in an awful rage. At the restaurant, it wasn't directed at me at first, but an hour later, he tried to push me out of a moving car. The threatening behavior continued to escalate, but St. Marie believed that Nietzsche was suffering too. Jack had no control over his mood disorders, During the time I was married to him, three different psychiatrists talked about it in terms of being bipolar, borderline personality, narcissism, and possibly schizophrenia. Even without alcohol for a month, he'd suddenly get a squirt of brain chemicals and turn mean. St. Marie says that he also manipulated her to get what he wanted. He was not beyond playing me, 
as many men do with family members they perceive as weaker. It's probably what they got away with, with their moms. Only their moms saw through them and thought, he'll grow out of it. Guess what, moms? They don't grow out of it. They just put it on their partners. That was Andrea Warner reading from Buffy St. Marie, the authorized biography. So how has this experience, spending this time with Buffy, getting to know her, all the intimate details of her life, how has it affected you? Oh, wow. Like, I mean, I'm forever changed. I feel like she's just like this. She's just this part of me now. I'm so lucky. Like, I just, I wanted and I always want, you know, people to get the credit that they deserve, particularly women and particularly Buffy. Like, it means so much to me to, like, have people who've already read this and said to me, oh, my gosh, I didn't know. Like, I knew she was I knew she was incredible, but uh, they didn't know the extent of just how incredible she is. Andrea, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Andrea Warner is based in Vancouver. She wrote Buffy St. Marie, an authorized biography. It's a band with a silly name, but a serious message. It was us addressing stereotypes that were addressed to our people through media like Disney and cartoons and trying to drill that into our heads as kids. So um, when, when, when the average savage got shortlisted, it showed that people actually cared about our message and what we were talking about. It showed us that uh, non-Indigenous people like took it in like we meant for it to be, you know? Mm. Snotty Nose Res Kids join me to explain why they are driven to break down stereotypes about Indigenous people. That's coming up. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild, talking all about music on the show today. And I want to tell you about a band that you might not be familiar with, for good reason. It's been more than 30 years since a Hollywood band, Northern Haze, released an album. Their last and only other album was released in 1985. Last month, the band released a brand new album. Here's band member James Ungalik. I waited 30 plus years to do another album. You can imagine that. We, we lost two prominent members of our group and... Um, uh, it was difficult uh, to get the equipment, the technology, and uh, the know-how like anything else. You know, it was growing, but it was growing slow. As James explains, the group lost two members of their band. In 2008, bassist Elijah Canuck died of cancer. A few weeks later, the band's frontman and lead singer, Kula Talak Inukshuk, was murdered. James explains how Canuck's death was a huge loss to the band. We grew up with him. He was a little bit older than us. He was so talented, and his mind couldn't stop, and um, he couldn't stop talking, too. (laughs) But it's just amazing how we got together, and um, a lot of his ideas we put together, and... uh, And Kuritarik went to school in the south when we were stranded up in our home. And he went to school and he came back playing guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Those two guys 
so well fitted together, being getting creative. The song Angaya Sakalak is special for James. It evolved over time, but the final version of it was written in memory of Elijah Canuck. We wrote the song when Elijah was sick from cancer and he went away and he was so far away. Um, we, we put him on the phone because uh, when they diagnosed him with, with cancer, uh, we wanted to encourage him and, and help keep fighting, but he lost the battle to cancer. It's about, I'll be there for him, you know, and I love him so much. He left us so soon. That song changed over time. We played it before he passed away. It was different. Uh, during his struggle, it was different. And um, after he left us, we wanted to make it permanent, the songs for him. That was James Ungalak of the band Northern Haze. The band just released their second album 33 years after their debut on Nunavut record label Akuluk Music. Thanks to Katie Geloff at As It Happens for sharing their story with us. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM 169. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. The Snotty Nose Rez kids aren't afraid to tell you how they feel in their music. The group, made up of Darren Young D. Metz and Quinton Young Tribes Nice, are Heisla from the Kitimat Village in British Columbia. They say their music is for Indigenous people, by Indigenous people. Fresh off a Polaris shortlist for their most recent album, The Average Savage, they're in the studio again wrapping up a new record, but took a break to be here with me today. Welcome to Unreserved. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Thanks for being here. Now, before we get into the whole what's it like to be famous now, I have to <laughs> ask you, because I've been... I've been um, following you along and wondering about this. What is the story behind your name? Snotty Nose Res Kids? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, well, it started when we were like kids, right? So uh, we grew up on the res. We grew up about like a five-minute walk from each other. And uh, when we grew up on the res, we grew up like free. There was like no boundaries in with living on the res. We got to roam free. And with Roman Free in Kitimat, it's like pretty cold out there. You always had a runny nose. <laughs> so we started referring to ourselves as um, Snotty Nose Res Kids, like as our friends as Snotty Nose Res Kids. And the story behind um, the actual name for ourselves came from a time when we were about probably like 17 years old. We were sitting at a, at a restaurant eating food. It's called Seamasters right, right inside our village. And this little girl came up and she like, popped up above the window and like looked us dead in the eyes and then picked up a dead crow and like opened its wings wide open and then just started laughing and we're like wow that's that's a snotty nose res kid if i ever seen one (laughs) (laughs) so she inspired your whole thing yeah exactly and thinking back at it it just um when we were thinking about our name and what to call ourselves and what to brand ourselves as that was it that was that was just it that was perfect for uh who we are well, yeah. it certainly gets your attention. 
So now, as I said, you started out uh, making music for Indigenous peoples. Um, but when you're nominated for something like the Polaris Prize, there's a whole new audience that opens up for you. What's it been like for you? Um, it's been it's been wild, you know, because like when we first started doing this, we started doing it for like for ourselves first and foremost, and for the people that come from our reservations and come from our experiences. But over the last few years here, um, it's kind of transformed into more of that with the release of the Average Savage, because the Average Savage was it was us addressing stereotypes that were addressed to our people through media like Disney and cartoons and trying to drill that into our heads as kids. So uh, when 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 the average savage got shortlisted, it showed that people actually cared about our message and what we were talking about. It showed us that uh, non-indigenous people like took it in like we meant for it to be. You know, mm-hmm. what's the most complex issue that you've that you've uh, tackled in your music? Um, for me, the most complex uh, issue that I had to deal with in writing music is mental health and suicide prevention. Mm-hmm. So when we first started this whole Snotty Nose Res Kids thing, uh, me and Dan were going through a lot of things. Um, I lost a brother to suicide uh, like probably two years before that. And I was having troubles expressing myself the way that I usually would. And I'm like a pretty cheerful guy, but I was in a, I was in a slump in a, in a weird dark space and I couldn't get out of it. So um, first and foremost, to get out of that, I had to express, I had to lay everything on the table and get everything off my chest that I had to, and that was in that first album, and that was it. Took a lot of work to to put that kind of stuff on out into the world. And why did you want to, or you feel um, that you want to address these kinds of issues in your music? Um, first and foremost, was uh, because because our our community was going through like a little. A crisis like I said I lost my brother to that yeah. and it wasn't easy for me to to get over what I was going through at the time so I thought I could like make music that these kids could relate to because there was a real like epidemic of kids attempting to um, end their lives yeah. and it was like not easy for us to look at and we were like trying to think like how can we how can we get our people out of this this weird thing that's going on in our community right now so we made these mu- this music that would um, that they could relate to, and if you listen to Off the Ledge, it's about one person talking his friend or his best friend off the ledge, and it's exactly the way that it's said. So that was probably the most complex song that I ever wrote. Yeah, most definitely. And like with all that being said, like even to this day, it's still happening. Yeah. You know, like I recently, like this last month, I lost my cousin to suicide. You know, like it's still real and even though it's uncomfortable to talk about it needs to be talked about you know yeah i'm so sorry for both of your losses that's a terrible way to lose somebody yeah how did music help you heal from that kind of loss um for me it was just pretty much getting it out get it out, getting it off my chest and by doing that uh by writing these things down and then putting them out to the world people would come to me and talk to me about it and tell me like how much our music has helped them get through their dark times and whatever they were going through at the time mm. and having that really like it cheered me up you know it made me like feel really important and made me made my my voice feel like it was really important because if I could like reach out to one person and affects one person's decision to like get them out of that dark place then that means the world to me that that gives me a reason for what i'm doing yeah most definitely like it's very therapeutic 
and we had this other song that follows off the ledge. It was called Black Blood, and that was like our final goodbye. You know, like okay, like we can't beat ourselves up over this anymore. We're gonna say whatever it is that we want to say to this person, and then move on. Basically, we even had um, a fan this year from the Yukon like tattoo like the lyrics on his arm. Wow. Yeah, like it was unreal. And it just lets you know, like, you're not the only one that feels this way. Yeah. So what were the lyrics that he had tattooed on him? Yeah, the lyrics were, you're not dead to me, you're free now. Wow. Yeah, like, it's heavy. That's heavy. That, like, speaks, like, I don't know, like, it just shows, like, how much just sharing those emotions from the heart can have an impact on somebody. Mm. Yeah, and when I wrote that, when I wrote that song, that was the song that I wrote about exactly what I went through from the time I got the news in the hotel room in Vancouver about to go to a Kanye West show to the moment that um, we like burned all his belongings and sent him off. You know, and that whole that whole verse for me was exactly what I went through from the minute I found out until the minute um, of like cremating his stuff. And letting him go, and I there was a weird um, there was a weird like experience that I had when we were burning his food and sending him off. The sky was like covered in the clouds, and like as we like threw his food on, like the sun opened up for like a quick minute, and that's when I was like, "You're not dead to me. You're free now." And when I put that in the lyric, I, that really meant a lot to me. And when I seen him, and he talked to me about it too, and he lost his mom. And he said that that lyric right there just like meant the world to him. And it just made him like feel so much better about him losing his mom like that. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah, no problem. Uh, You're in the studio right now working on another album. Tell me what's uh, different about this new record. With this new album that we've been working on, we've been working on it for a year and a half, actually, since um, just before, like before the summer of of 2017. And uh, the writings are like some of the writings I feel like are kind of like, oh, man, I wish that we could have put this out a year ago, you know, like because like you kind of grow and then you grow out of your writings and then you have to change the album up. So we've probably dropped like five songs, cut five songs from it because we're not that person anymore, you know, Mm -hmm. because over the years you've grown as artists and our sound has grown. Like we hooked up with a new engineer out of uh, Toronto, out of Sandbox Studios. He goes by the name of K.R., and he's really evolved our sound to another level, to a level that we think that we can really um, uh, explode in the mainstream hip-hop scene. Well, thank you both so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We appreciate it. Darren Young D. Metz and Quinton Young Tribes. Nice are these snotty nose Res kids. Their new album will be out in early 2019. Remember those old music classes where they brought all the students together in your grade to learn choral singing? Well, music class is way cooler in some schools today. Take, for example, St. Francis Cree Immersion School in Saskatoon. The music teacher is a spoken word poet. Her name is Zoe Roy, and she uses music to help students tell their stories. The CBC's Natanas Piapot brings us this story. Hey!
I'm Zoe Roy. I'm a spoken word poet and a community-based educator based out of Saskatoon. And I'm Cree Dene and Métis and a member of Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation. My goal in the classroom is just to connect uh, young people to the joy that music making can bring. And I want them to know that they can accomplish something really creative, complex, and on the spot by just having a good time doing it. Martine Bear, I teach grade six, Cree. Hip hop is so common with young kids, and just having the kids write their own music, it um, it kind of brings a lot of shy kids out of their uh, comfort zone. Uh, Hip-hop comes from a place of oppression, and that's something that we as Indigenous people understand. The challenges that we face within our own selves, within our families, within our communities, and within Canada, those are deep-rooted and complex. There has to be a source of joy, uh, unapologetically, that uh, we're able to to celebrate ourselves. I see a lot of um, poverty. A lot of them come from bro- broken homes. Alcohol, drugs is a big issue, not only in the city, but uh, reserves too. That's just a barrier that we as teachers have to um, make a bridge with. With a whole bunch of our friends playing hide and go seek. For the second time this week, one more time, running around the res. You know, for a lot of my teenage years, I felt really incomplete or insufficient as an Indigenous person. I felt like I had to find myself outside of myself. I never felt like I was enough until an elder told me one day, you're a perfect Indian girl just the way you are. And then I realized that, that I was enough. And that makes me feel really good. And I want to convey that message to other Indigenous children and youth who are searching for their identity outside of themselves. I want children to know that they're enough and that music can be a, a vehicle to understand who we are as Indigenous children, youth, and people. I see you. I hear you. We're sounding like one voice. We're riding the beat. We know how to do that. She's the best music teacher. And when she comes to your class, it's like a sunrise. <laughs> <laughs> you guys did great. We're going to... No, I know, because we fell off. That was the first Thanks to the CBC's Natanas Piapot for bringing us that story. We heard from grade six and seven students at St. Francis Cree Immersion School. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community culture and conversation. This episode was produced by Zoe Tennant, Kyle Muzika, Stephanie Cram, and Anna Lazowski. Special thanks to Anne Penman this week. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 Territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I go say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.